Rumor has it that along a quiet rural stretch of road just outside of the tiny Pennsylvania town of Copel, there lurks a decrepit ghostly being, a man with no face. Depending on who you ask, you'll likely hear different explanations as to who or what exactly this mysterious man is. Some stories are brutal and terrifying. He was an insane man who ripped his own face off, or he was an unfortunate factory worker who fell into a vat of acid, melting his face away. Some claim that he was an unfortunate fisherman, struck by lightning in a freak accident. Still others claim that the man had been a utility worker, and his disfigurement was the result of having been electrocuted while working on some power lines. Some call him the Green Man, and others know him as Charlie No-Face. But whatever you choose to call him, the legend of this strange, faceless man has persisted for decades, and even today, some still believe that if you take a ride along State Route 351 late at night, and if you are lucky, or unlucky, depending on how you want to look at it, you just might have a run-in with the startling, spectral, faceless man, the Green Man. But you won't. At least, not anymore. You see, the Green Man is real. However, his story isn't quite as extreme as the legend might indicate. The Green Man is a man, and his name was Raymond Robinson. Raymond was a local boy. He was born on October 29th, 1910, and he was a perfectly normal child. He enjoyed playing with the other local boys and exploring the forests and streams and fields around town. Sadly though, his days as a carefree young boy were numbered. And on June 18, 1919, his life changed forever. That day, Raymond and a company of his friends were walking along the Beaver River to a swimming spot that they liked to visit when they came upon the Pittsburgh Harmony Butler and Newcastle Railway Company Bridge, a bridge which spanned across the river. The bridge was used by a local trolley service that shuttled people back and forth around some of the small towns scattered about the region, and these trolleys were powered by a 1,200-volt line running across the bridge. It was dangerous. So dangerous, in fact, that a year prior, another local boy had died from electrical burns he had sustained on the bridge while playing with some friends. Despite all of this, though, the bridge was still a popular attraction for boys of the area the most daring of whom would challenge each other to climb it. And when Raymond and his company of friends arrived at the bridge on that fateful day, that is exactly what they did. Spying a bird's nest at the top of the bridge, Raymond issued a challenge to his friends. Who will see how many birds are in the nest, he asked. However, his challenge fell upon deaf ears. The boys all knew of the dangers associated with the bridge and of the death of the other boy a year prior. They refused. Raymond Robinson, however, was not like his friends. The daring boy began to scale the bridge, calling out to his friends below that he would find out how many birds were in the nest. But he never made it. As he climbed, he brushed the electrical line, causing 1,200 volts to go running through his body, knocking him off the bridge. The next day, a headline appeared in the local newspaper, reading, Morado Lad, 8 shocked by live wire, will die. While he did survive the initial electrocution, the damage to Raymond was catastrophic. He spent a month at the Providence Hospital in Beaver Falls, barely clinging to his life, and expected by many to lose the battle at any moment. Amazingly, though, he didn't. 
Raymond Robinson somehow managed to survive, but with devastating injuries that would affect him for the rest of his life. Raymond's face had been essentially melted away. His eyes and nose were erased, leaving him blind, and his skin was melted and scarred. His lips and ears were badly disfigured, and his left arm was burnt off at the elbow. But he was alive. And amazingly, Raymond ultimately pulled through the incident, and for most of the rest of his life, he lived at home with his family, attempting to live the most fulfilling life that he could given his condition. He liked to listen to the radio and to make wallets and belts to sell for bits of extra cash. He kept active as best as he could and enjoyed mowing the lawn, although he'd usually miss a few spots. He also loved to go out for walks, but this presented a problem. His appearance drew him far more attention than he wanted. So he elected to go on his walks at night, often staying out far past midnight, using a walking stick to slowly guide himself along the quiet streets around his family home. And before long, he had become something of a fixture in the area. People would drive along the street at night, many just hoping to get a quick glimpse of the faceless man. Others stopped to ask him questions, and some even brought beer and cigarettes to share with Raymond during their conversations. However, not everyone possessed the same innocent curiosity, and instead of partaking in friendly conversation, some would invite him into their car, only to drive away and drop off the blind man in a foreign area, or sometimes even beat him up. Despite the hardships, though, Raymond Robinson continued his walks for most of his life, as long as he was physically able to. By the time he passed away in 1985, Raymond had become a local legend. And nowadays, the story of Charlie No-Face, or the Green Man, as some know it, still persists. And every now and then, reports still come in of a mysterious, faceless man walking along State Route 351 in the dead of night. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game. Hello there, everyone, and welcome back to Simply Strange. This is episode 32. So glad you all could make it. Sorry this one's a tad late, although technically it is still hopefully going to be Wednesday when I get this uploaded, just Wednesday night, and I like to get it done in the morning, but I don't feel like anyone is that concerned about it, so I don't know why I'm still talking about it, so let's just move on. Yeah, before we hop into this week's episode, I just wanted to take a second to say thank you to everyone who has supported the show or even so much as just listened to the show a few times. Right after the release of the last episode at the end of January, we hit 100,000 all-time downloads, which is amazing. And that's a pretty huge milestone. I've been eyeing that number for a while and really excited to hit it. I didn't really have any expectations when I started this show a year and a half ago. I just kind of wanted to make a podcast Obviously, I had hoped that someone would listen to it, but I think I more expected to just be shouting into a void than actually have people listening 
to the show. So thanks everyone for listening. It's awesome that this show has an audience. Hopefully we can add another zero to the end of that download number eventually. That would be pretty cool. All right, let's go ahead and get into the episode. This week, we will be telling the story of Resurrection Mary. probably all heard some variation of a vanishing hitchhiker story. For decades, long, desolate stretches of road coupled with the cover of darkness have stirred our imaginations and awakened our fear that somewhere in the emptiness lurk creatures beyond our world. This fear leads to stories that become etched in our minds and, over time, can become synonymous with the spectral oddities that supposedly inhabit them. In the case of the so-called Green Man, The stories are easily explained and grounded in reality. We know the tragic tale of Raymond Robinson's near-fatal shock and the subsequent legend that was born thereafter. However, there are no shortage of similar stories throughout the world, urban legends with puzzling origins, and some are far less grounded in the physical world. Since the 1940s, Dallas's White Rock Lake has been the site of numerous encounters with the mysterious Lady of White Rock Lake. As the stories go, in the wee evening hours, a beautiful blonde woman appears from the darkness, seemingly coming from the direction of the water. One such encounter was with Mr. and Mrs. Guy Malloy in 1953. According to the Malloys, the woman approached them from the darkness as they drove down the road near the lake. She wandered into the street in front of the couple as they drove, blocking it. The Malloys noticed that the woman, her white dress brightly illuminated by the headlights bearing down on her, was soaking wet. She seemed distressed, so they stopped to offer her help. The girl gave them an address and climbed into the back seat of the Malloys' car, but offered no explanation as to her state, specifically why she might be soaking wet. Mr. Malloy started the car and began to drive. Meanwhile, Mrs. Malloy turned to the back seat to converse with the mysterious girl. But to her astonishment, the girl had vanished, and all that remained of her was a wet seat. The stunned Malloys carried on to the address that the girl had provided, on Gaston Avenue in nearby Lakewood. When they arrived, they spoke with a middle-aged man who met them at the door and informed them that the girl's description matched that of his daughter. His daughter, who had died two years previously, who drowned after falling off a pier into White Rock Lake. In Switzerland, the woman of the Belchin Tunnel is known to materialize from the darkness in front of oncoming motorists, sometimes even speaking to them before disappearing. In Sale Creek, Tennessee, Shipley Hollow Road is said to be the home of a mysterious entity that, for centuries, has climbed into the back of buggies, and then cars, and even collided with passing vehicles, leaving no damage to the vehicle that it hit. In Uniondale, South Africa, the ghost of Marie Charlotte Rue, a young woman killed in a car accident, is known to hitchhike with friendly motorists, and then, you guessed it, disappear from the moving vehicle a short while later, leaving no trace. 
But above all of these stories, quite possibly the most famous instance of the vanishing hitchhiker legend is that of Resurrection Mary. Justice is a village of some 13,000 people located in Chicago's southwest side. It's a small neighborhood and largely residential, with one major exception. About a quarter of the village's area is occupied by a cemetery, Resurrection Cemetery. Resurrection Cemetery is massive. It contains over 152,000 graves, as well as a mausoleum containing 5,300 crypts. And with an enormous burial site such as this, Unsurprisingly comes an assortment of strange stories and legends, the most famous of which is that of Resurrection Mary. As the story goes, the legend of Resurrection Mary began one night in 1934. Mary and her boyfriend were enjoying a night of revelry at the O. Henry Ballroom, now known as the Willowbrook Ballroom, along Archer Avenue in Willow Springs, Illinois. At some point in the evening, the night of pleasure made a dramatic shift and became a night of anger. The couple got into a heated argument, and a short while later, Mary stormed out of the ballroom and began to make her way home. Still wearing her beautiful white dancing dress and matching dancing shoes, Mary walked along Archer Avenue, heading in the direction of Resurrection Cemetery. But sadly, she never made it home. Mary was struck by a hit-and-run driver, killing her immediately. The driver fled and has never been found and Mary's devastated parents had her buried in Resurrection Cemetery. But this was not the end for Mary. In fact, her story was only just beginning. Soon, she would become a household name in southwest Chicago and beyond. Back in the 1930s, Jerry Palis used to frequent the dance halls of Chicago. One of his favorites was the Liberty Grove and Hall near 47th Street in Mozart. It was a place that he frequented regularly, a very popular dance hall that, every weekend, would become packed with young people gathered for a night of celebration. And Jerry liked to be in the thick of it. Now, Jerry considered himself to be quite the ladies' man, so naturally when he spotted a beautiful blonde woman, about 25 years old, and wearing an elegant white party dress standing alone in the distance, he approached her and asked her to dance. Given the raucousness of the dance hall surrounding her, the woman remained surprisingly quiet. But she accepted Jerry's invitation, and the two began to dance. Jerry noticed that the woman's hands were unusually cold, and as they carried on dancing through the evening, the woman remained oddly quiet. She divulged very little information about herself as Jerry held a fairly one-sided conversation with her. But nevertheless, Jerry was captivated by her beauty, and for the duration of the evening, he danced with only her. Among the details that she did reveal were that she lived in the south side of Chicago, and that her name was Mary. The night wore on, and the two continued dancing until around 11.30, at which point Jerry finally decided to turn in for the night. He offered Mary a ride home, which she accepted telling him that she lived in the nearby Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. And so, the two left the Liberty Grove and Hall. 
But Jerry Payless did not get the opportunity to drop this mysterious white-clad woman off at her house, for it would seem that she had other plans. As Jerry made his way through the streets of Chicago towards Bridgeport, she made an unexpected request, asking him to divert his path and take her down Archer Avenue. Jerry was perplexed by the request, as this detour was in the absolute opposite direction of their final destination, but he obliged nevertheless. He turned the car around, and the two began to make their way toward Archer Avenue. A short while later, Jerry found himself driving down Archer Avenue. The main gates of Resurrection Cemetery began to creep into view. They loomed larger and larger, until the pair were nearly past them. But then, Mary told Jerry to stop. Suddenly and sternly, she ordered him to pull off to the side of the road, just in front of the main entrance to Resurrection Cemetery. She opened the door, and while instructing Jerry not to follow her, she climbed out of the car and darted across the street. Jerry sat in his car in shock, watching as Mary made her way up the road that led to the cemetery's main gate. And then, before she ever even made it to the gate, the mysterious woman in the white dress faded away into the darkness, disappearing before his eyes. Jerry's story isn't the only one of this nature. In the years that followed, sightings of the mysterious, white-clad woman became commonplace, and Mary would be seen all around town, at dance clubs, in taxis, or even just strolling along the street, often near her body's resting place in Resurrection Cemetery. And quite often, the sightings would follow a recurring theme. Young men would encounter a charming young woman at the ballroom. They would share a night of revelry, and then at the end of the night, the woman would accept an offer for a ride home. She would give vague instructions that ultimately took them to Resurrection Cemetery, and then she would vanish without a trace. On January 31st of 1979, an article appeared in the Suburban Tribune de detailing another fascinating and mystifying encounter with a mysterious girl in a white party dress. The article related a story told by a Chicago cab driver who, for the sake of anonymity, was referred to simply as Ralph. As the story went, Ralph had been working late one Thursday night, and he found himself driving down Archer Avenue around midnight. This particular section of Archer was a pretty lonely area, dotted with the occasional home or small business, but mostly just trees and old fences with very little lighting. As he traveled along the empty road, Ralph noticed a young woman in a white dress standing along the side of the road by the entrance to a small shopping center just a few blocks from the O. Henry Ballroom. He noticed that despite the frigid evening, the woman wore no jacket. Wondering if the woman was having car trouble, Ralph pulled over to see if she needed help or maybe a ride, and as soon as he did, the woman wordlessly hopped into the passenger seat of his cab. Ralph tried to make a conversation with her, asking what was wrong, if she had had car trouble, if there was anything he could do to help, but she gave him no response. 
Ralph asked if there was anywhere he could take her, or if he should just continue up Archer Avenue, and the girl nodded. So he continued on his way. The two drove mostly in silence. Ralph recalled that the only words that the girl spoke to him as he drove was a brief comment along the lines of, the snow came early this year. But aside from that, she only nodded. That is, until a couple of miles later. According to Ralph, they arrived at a small shack along the side of the road. Here, the girl yelled. Confused, Ralph slammed the brakes. He brought the car to a stop and looked around, trying to figure out just where exactly it was that the girl wished to be dropped off. Where? Ralph asked her. The girl pointed in the direction of the shack. Ralph took a quick glance at the shack, and then he looked back at the girl in his passenger seat. But she was gone. The seat was empty, and the girl in white was nowhere to be seen. Unsurprisingly, as it turns out, the little shack in question happened to be located directly across the street from the main gates to Resurrection Cemetery. Time and time again, the story would unfold until dozens of accounts of encounters with Resurrection Mary were eventually reported, making it one of the most retold and well-known ghost stories in America. In September of 1980, Claire Lopez Rudnicki spotted a woman in white walking along the edge of the cemetery near the road. The woman, she claimed, seemed to be emitting a bright light. Fascinated by the sight, Claire and her boyfriend turned the car around and slowly drove by the glowing woman on the side of the road. As they approached, they were able to get a better view of her face. Or at least where her face should have been. But to the couple's terror, they slowly realized that the woman, the apparition, whatever it was, had no face. Instead, where her face should have been was blackness, a dark void. One evening in October of 1989, Janet Kolal and Pamela Turlow Wilson found themselves driving up Archer Avenue. It was a dark evening, and there were few lights around save for Janet's headlights. As the two made their way past Resurrection Cemetery, Janet suddenly noticed a figure come into frame. Illuminated by her headlights, the figure darted into the street from the direction of the cemetery's main gates. Janet slammed the brakes in an attempt not to hit it. But she was too late. Janet watched in terror as the figure, a blonde woman in a white dress, was impacted by her car. But amazingly, there was no thud, as if Janet had somehow managed not to hit her. Janet looked around, and there was no one to be seen. The woman had simply vanished. Dozens of stories just like these exist, detailing accounts of a mysterious, white-clad woman appearing and disappearing from the area around Resurrection Cemetery. Yet despite this, we still don't know exactly who Resurrection Mary actually is. Of course, it's always possible that the whole thing is just the result of overactive imaginations. The vanishing hitchhiker story is certainly not a phenomenon unique to Resurrection Mary. Jerry's just happened to be the first story to emerge of the Resurrection Mary variety. And from there, it's entirely possible that, augmented by the impact of Jerry's story, others began to have similar experiences. But supposing the stories are true, and there is a Resurrection Mary doomed to wander Archer Avenue by night, then who is she? There are, of course, some theories. 
On March 10th of 1934, a young Polish woman by the name of Mary Brigovi was killed in a car crash and buried in Resurrection Cemetery at grave number 9819 in section MM. Now, many of the encounters with Resurrection Mary claim that Mary ultimately disappeared into the cemetery, where she seemed to be heading to one grave in particular. Grave number 9819 in section MM. There is, of course, one problem with this theory. If the legends are to be believed, Resurrection Mary was killed by a hit-and-run driver, whereas Mary Brigovi was killed in a car accident. And furthermore, physical descriptions of Mary Brigovi do not match those of the alleged encounters with Resurrection Mary. Jerry Palis considered himself an even-keeled, sensible man. He was not one to believe in ghosts. The day after his inexplicable encounter with the mysterious woman who vanished into the cemetery, he went out to the address that she had originally told him to take her home to. Upon arriving, a woman came to the door. It wasn't Mary, though. In fact, when Jerry inquired as to whether the woman from the previous night lived there, the woman who answered responded that there was no Mary who lived there, that Jerry had the wrong address. So he turned around to leave. But as he did so, something caught his eye, a picture, just inside the house, of the woman in the white dress from the night before. There, he exclaimed, pointing at the photo and explaining to the woman that this was the girl he had seen the previous evening. The woman, however, reasserted that Jerry was mistaken, explaining that the girl in the photograph had died five years ago. Few further details remain of Jerry's account, though, and the address of this home, beyond that it was located on Damon Avenue, and the identity of the girl in the picture, remains a mystery. In October of 2016, the Willowbrook Ballroom, the nearly 100-year-old ballroom where, according to the legend, Resurrection Mary spent her final living evening, was undergoing work on the roof when a fire started. Noticing the flames, employees called the fire department, who arrived quickly, but upon their arrival, suffered water pressure issues, allowing the fire to spiral out of control. The building was destroyed and later demolished. Nowadays, all that remains of the Willowbrook Ballroom is a grassy field, a dilapidated parking lot, and the ballroom's old sign along Archer Avenue. A stark reminder of the fascinating history of the ballroom and its connection to Chicago's most famous haunting. Alright everyone, that is a wrap for this month's episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it. In fact, I'd be curious to know what people think about this one. I usually focus on one particular story, but we definitely jumped around a little bit more than usual with this one. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear what everyone thinks about this one. If this was a welcome change that you'd like to hear more of, give me a shout on social media and let me know. And if it was awful and you never want to hear an episode like this again, then let me know that too. Simply Strange is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So you can find me on all of those places. I've been trying to be more active on there. So yeah, give those a follow. 
Aside from that, there's merch at simplystrangepodcast.com slash merch. And you can help support the show by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash simplystrange. Every dollar and much more that is brought in by either of those goes right back into the show. So if you enjoy the show and would like to help us continue to grow, please consider supporting it over there. And speaking of which, I would like to extend a huge thank you to our newest supporters over on Patreon, Evan M., George, and my mom. So thanks so much to all of them. The support really is appreciated. And that's it. Get out of here. Just kidding. Have a great day.